This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me on the phone from the Black Star Riders and Thin Lizzy, it is guitarist Scott Gorham. The new album is Another State of Grace. But before that, before we get to Thin Lizzy and Black Star Riders, which is one of my favorite bands, I'm going to talk about one of my all-time favorite bands, uh, Kiss, of course. Uh, they have an or. There's a new book out called Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked by author Greg Prado. And Greg is on the phone. Bonjour, Greg. How are you? Howdy, Mitch. How are you doing? It's great to hear your voice again. Yes. Uh, and, and I love your books. And you, you've, of course, tackled Kiss or Kiss-related stuff before. You did the Eric Carr book, which, of course, we all love Eric Carr. Um, before we get talking about Scott Gorham and, and Thin Lizzy, because somebody's told me, I think you're a big fan, right? Yes, I love Thin Lizzy. Um, back when I was in high school here in the States, Thin Lizzy, it was back in the late 80s, uh, Thin Lizzy, no one really knew about them besides uh, The Boys Are Back of Town and Jailbreak, but I dug deeper. And as a result, Black Rose is one of my favorite rock studio albums of all time. And I also love Johnny the Fox. And without a doubt, one of my favorite all-time live rock albums is the Live and Dangerous album. I put that up there with Kiss Alive and Cheap Trick at Budokan and all those great classic live albums. All those great ones. And of course, Black Rose, 40 years this year, 1979. So uh, before we talk uh, Kiss, have you ever written a Thin Lizzy book? I never have, but I would indeed like to one day since I'm uh, such a big fan of theirs. Uh, Yeah, that would be be definitely a topic I'd be interested in. Good. So, so let's talk about Take It Off now. A lot has been made over the years about Kiss and makeup. And when you go to a show these days, you will hear rock and roll all night. And you'll hear Detroit Rock City. And you'll hear Shout It Out Loud. All this stuff that was written in the 1970s. But we sort of have this lost era, right? right. Uh, your book covers this lost era. Talk to me about this this thought you have about going, okay, you know what? We know 1974 to 1979 or what. I'm going to talk about that other stuff. Tears are falling. Crazy, crazy nights. Hide your heart. And I have to say, uh, when I last saw Kiss in Montreal on August 16th, they played Crazy Nights. And it was the highlight of the year. I I had never seen the song played live. And I was like, ah, oh, my God, look at that. Um, talk to me about that era and, and what sort of drew you to write an entire book, not just, hey, I'm going to talk about it in a tweet. Well, it seems like the majority of Kiss books that are out there, um, a lot of them with the major ones that are put out with, uh, that are put out through Gene and Paul, the main focus or the people that we're hearing the most from are Gene and Paul. So with this book, I uh, spoke to some other people because I figured, with um, some of the past Kiss books, such as like Kiss Behind the Mask and uh, several other ones, um, the, like, like you were saying before, the, the focus is the makeup era, but the non-makeup era does not get that much focus and attention. And when it does, it's really just Gene and Paul, but we never really hear a lot from Bruce. Uh, we didn't hear that much from Eric, who's sadly now deceased, so we can't hear from him. But, um, you know, I just figured, why not try to speak to some other people that haven't been interviewed at length about this era? Because uh, growing up as a teenager here in the States in the um, 80s, like I just said before, Kiss at that time was still my favorite band. I saw them on the Crazy Nights tour. I saw them on the Hot in the Shade tour. And I saw Freely's Comet open up for Iron Maiden on the Seventh Sun tour. So I was able to see a lot of shows and they were still my favorite band at that point. I have to admit that since then, uh, I'm really at this point 
really just a kiss 74 through 79 type guy. But um, I think that if you, each of the non-makeup era albums, there's at least several songs I think that are still solid songs. And if you were to strip them of their 80s glossy pop production, I think they would probably stand up very well to a lot of their 70s classics, you know, songs such as Not for the Innocent. And, um, you know, there's actually, like I said, a million to one. Come on. That's a great one. Yeah. No, no, I'm saying, well, honestly, that track, I think stands up, that stands up, uh, stands up perfectly on its own because from to the best of my knowledge, wasn't look it up recorded. Uh, they weren't sure if they were taking off the makeup or not at that point. So they, so for instance, Gene was still singing, I think from the demon persona and that, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, a little bit. There, there, there was a sort of an indecision, I think. But uh, I'll quickly remind the folks: uh, "Take It Off," uh, "Kiss Truly Unmasked" is out November nineteenth. It is currently uh, available, or pre-orders are available on Amazon.com. So check that out. But uh, what I find interesting in the book here is, like you said, we've heard the stories through the the, the Ace Frehley lens and through the Paul Stanley lens and the Gene Simmons lens, you know. But you've got K.K. Downing of Judas Priest. Now, that one sort of shocked me. I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 what, is, what does K.K. have to do? Because he's got, he's got his own story, you know, Judas Priest. But you've also got Charlie Benente, a, a avowed Kiss fanatic, you know, Chris Jericho, Derek Sherinian, who, of course, was hiding and playing keyboards on the Revenge Tour. So you've got some great stuff in there. Um, I want to ask you about this one here, Chapter 12, where you start talking about Carnival of Souls. Mm. The first line is about, well, you know what? Kiss through the 80s were, were, were seemingly chasing trends, and a lot of the people in the book are, are, are sort of mirroring that and saying, yeah, you know what? They were they were chasing Bon Jovi. They were chasing Def Leppard. They were chasing... Is that the perception you have as well? Because if, if you were to ask me what my perception was, it'd be like, yeah, Kiss in the 70s were the leaders, and in the 80s they were follow the leaders. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would say that that's a fair assumption, if I think about that. I mean, um, and also as far as just the way the Kiss looked at the time as well, you could definitely say that they mirrored the Bon Jovis and the Motley Crues, you know, at, at the time. I mean, Paul Stanley, I think, could definitely get away with it because he was always kind of like a flamboyant, showy type guy. But it was kind of embarrassing around the um, asylum era when Gene Simmons was getting dressed in all these Vegasy type wardrobes and feminine type makeup because you'd read these um, things with him where he would talk about maybe like several years before or even several several years later where he says in the early years of Kiss, they were trying to dress like the um, <clears throat> New York Dolls, but that it didn't really work for them because they were like these huge guys and it looked like linebackers and like drag. So here they are in the 80s, but they were doing the same thing that they supposedly shied away from early on. So that always struck me as kind of strange that they couldn't see that, that, you know, Gene should have stuck to the whole like, you know, demon type persona. I mean, he could have done that because he found it uh, when it came to 1992. He, you know, had the goatee and started looking like Tom Araya from Slayer. So he should have just been doing that, I think, all along. That would have been a, a much more comfortable standpoint, I think, for Gene. Yeah, the, the, the 85 Asylum look was, was not great for him. Now, you've, of course, written books that are not just about, you know, classic rock and kiss. You, you've, you've focused a lot also on 90s metal. You have the survival of the fittest, heavy metal in the 90s. Uh, a book about uh, Mr. Bungle or, or uh, Faith No More, I should say. Um, talk to me a little bit about your love of 90s music, because you also have this new Soundgarden book coming out or out called Dark and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. Um, 
Talk to me about that because, you know, when you look at me personally and you talk to me about 90s and you start naming these bands, generally I nod off and go, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, you're great. <laughs> uh, but you embraced it. Uh, and so kudos to you for that because, listen, I'm a classic rock guy now. I mean, I liked my Bon Jovis and I liked my Kisses and I liked my Cheap Tricks and that other stuff. I, mm, you know, I, I heard Smell Like Teen Spirit and I went, mm, smells like I'm out of here. Uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, talk to me about that and this new sort of dark black and blue, the Soundgarden storybook, which by the way, folks is on Amazon right now. You don't have yes. to pre-order this one. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's for sale as a Kindle download and also a paperback. Um, as far as music, what I listen to, I listen to everything. I firmly believe that every single genre of music, there's at least several artists that are valid and also very good. So you can name any kind of genre and I could probably name several bands or artists that I'm a fan of. And I really did enjoy the uh, 90s, which I'm surprised you weren't a fan of a lot of those grunge bands, because a lot of them list 70s Kiss as a very big influence. And it seemed like a lot of those bands, production-wise, were modeling their sound after the early live-sounding Kiss albums, like Rock and Roll Over and also Dress to Kill. They were trying to get that live sound again. So I'm surprised that you're not a big fan of like bands like Alice in Chains and also Soundgarden. Well, I got to tell you, I, I as I've gotten older, I've discovered two things about what makes me tick in terms of music. A, I, I like melody, and you know, I like Metallica. And if you listen to Metallica in terms of thrash metal, there's a lot of melody going through those songs. It's not just a whole bunch of mumbo jumbo. And I like vocalists. I need a vocalist that has something that speaks to my ear and. I just found that a lot of the 90s guys were either too aggressive, too atonal, too uh, irritating. And I just could never and, – and I know people are going, well, quick, Chris Cornell and oh, Elaine Stan. I'm going, yeah, well, my ears didn't like it. And, and that's not a disrespect to them in, in, in the larger sense that I'm glad people like it because I love that people buy music. You want to buy music, I don't care if it's Cher or Soundgarden or Madonna or, or Bananarama or Kiss or – as long as you're buying Right. I'm in. <laughs> right, I understand. Um, but my ears just don't like certain sounds. And right. the, the, the 90s stuff, you know, I tried. Listen, I tried to listen to, to Soundgarden. Uh, I tried listening a little bit to Nirvana, you know, because at the beginning, you know, at least up here, the Much Music Power Hour would put those bands, you know, there'd be a Rat video and a Judas Priest video and then there'd be a Soundgarden video. And I, and I would just be like, hmm, yeah, not working. But, right, I understand. Yeah. You know, and listen, I saw Guns N' Roses on their uh, Not In This Lifetime tour, and they started doing a, a tribute to Chris by playing Black Hole Sun. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I go to the bathroom. I just, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't take it. So, but listen, uh, for fans who can take and who love it, books out, you can read about that. Um, yeah, and also I was going to say, too, if you're a fan of metal, you would probably enjoy the Soundgarden book because they did all new interviews with Phil Anselmo from Pantera and also Dave Weindorf from Monster Magnet. And, I, and you, met, you also mentioned Guns N' Roses. Soundgarden uh, opened up several legs of the um, Use Your Illusion tour, and that's all discussed at length in this book. So, And also, of course, who, who could forget the Voivod Faith No More Soundgarden tour in 1990? That's also uh, See? discussed at length as well. Voivod is, is homeschool. That's, that's my backyard. Now, you also uh, sometimes step out of the rock stuff, and you write uh, books about sports. You've done one about the... Uh, New York Islanders, and you've done some uh, baseball ones too, New York Yankees. Um, as we enter the the new hockey season, we're September 2019, 
October the season starts. Are you still a huge hockey fan and are you still rooting for the somewhat dysfunctional New York Islanders? Uh, all three of my main teams that I root for are very dysfunctional. I'm talking about the New York Mets, the New York Jets, and of course the New York Islanders. Those are my three top teams and uh, they've provided me a lifetime worth of heartache and also definitely heartbreak. Wow. I, yeah, I think this is the first time I've heard an actual human cop to being a New York Jets fan. That's... <laughs> Well, you know what? Let me just quickly. I'll tell you uh, the reason why I was a, why I am a fan of those three teams is I started following sports in the early '80s, and at that point, all three of those teams were local on Long Island, where I live. Uh, the, Je the Jets and the Mets shared Shea Stadium at the time, and the Islanders were at Nassau Coliseum. Uh, since then, the Islanders are now in Brooklyn, uh, and the Jets, of course, moved to Jersey, and the Mets are the only team that's still playing on Long Island in Queens. See, so there you go. Uh, before we get over to uh, Scott Gorham of uh, Thin Lizzy and Black Star Raid Riders fame, uh, do go to Amazon.com and just type in Greg Prado, P-R-A-T-O. You will see all his books from King's X to the Yacht Rock book to Grunge is Dead, thankfully. Uh, Primus, touch. <laughs> the thankfully is my thing. It's not in his title. Uh, mm -hmm. But Greg, uh, thank you. And uh, shall we? Uh, shall we? gander off and wander off and listen to what Scott had to say? Yes, and before we do so, I just want to quickly point out about this book, Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked. Um, when you asked me how it's different from other Kiss books, I tried to do some different things with this book. So like you mentioned, K.K. Downing talking about uh, why a lot of the uh, bands such as Kiss and Ozzy and Judas Priest soften their sound in the 80s. He talks about that. We also have Martin Popoff talking about... Um, all, we go year by year from 1980 through, 1983 through 1996, because that's the whole era when Kiss was unmasked. We go year by year. He talks about some of the top metal albums each year. So we kind of con uh, compare and contrast uh, to what Kiss's album was at that point. And also an interesting thing I did is I interviewed Catherine Terman, who is a co-writer of the book called um, Louder Than Hell, which is a great heavy metal uh, history book. And I talked to her about uh, misogyny and metal in the 80s, because that's something that I don't think has really ever been discussed at length, uh, because you could definitely say that some of Gene's lyrics at the time, like lyrics such as Dance All Over Your Face and also Burn, Bitch, Burn, could definitely be uh, considered misogynistic. So we talk about that a little bit. But my personal favorite interview of the whole book was Mitch LaFond talking about the Smashers, Thrashers and Hits album. Yeah, you see, wasn't that a great moment? And and by the way, burn bitch, burn misogynistic. Oh my god, <laughs> boy, that that animalized album. I am not a fan of. I, I I like a couple of songs, but but I don't know. There was something. There was just. I think the cover turned me off. To be honest, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. There was something just. Eh. But uh, yeah, boy, oh boy, uh, there is no uh, Pulitzer for burn bitch, burn. Let me tell you. <laughs> right, I agree. <laughs> And on that, folks, uh, here is uh, the one, uh, the only guitarist extraordinaire, Scott Gorham. We are speaking with guitarist uh, Scott Gorham. The new album is Another State of Grace. Of course, the band is Black Star Riders, which everyone knows is one of my favorite bands. And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of Black Star, and, and I think fans get tired of hearing me talk about you and Thunder and Gothard and all those... <laughs> those European bands, but I love you guys. And I think you need to be bigger. And uh, how can I say, uh, just have a, a higher profile in North America for all three bands, because it's, it's just honest rock and roll. I 
I, I I Mitch, I so agree with you. We 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 need to be much much bigger everywhere. <laughs> if I do say so myself, it is true. Uh, Black Star Riders. I mean, we've got quite a following over here in the in the United Kingdom and uh, you know pretty much throughout Europe. Uh, America, it's it's tough to get when you're a new band. It is very tough to get a foothold. You know. Uh, and what it takes is uh, a band like ourselves. We've got to get back over to America, Canada, all those places over there, and just play more. So uh, hopefully after this uh, next uh, European stint, we'll have uh, things booked up so we can come over and uh, and see you guys. I certainly hope so. And uh, I did my part last year. I got you booked uh, in a gig in Montreal, and everybody had a great time. So good. Good for that. <laughs> You see that? We can't even take a day off. Hey, somebody get us a gig somewhere. That's right, on that Judas Priest tour. Okay, so let's talk about this, because I have been a fan from the very beginning. And, you know, you had Marco Mendoza, and you had Damon Johnson, and and others, and and, and the band has changed. Talk to me about these lineup changes. Is it... Is it a struggle to sort of keep a lineup together or is it a refresh, a, a renouveau, as we say, to, to get new blood? Because what Christian brings to the band is sort of a high octane, high energy, youth, youthful kind of approach. Uh, talk to me about, about these lineup changes and, and how do you feel about the band now? Well, you know, I know it's, it's daunting for some people when uh, you've been playing with a certain member for I know X amount of time, right? But uh, I've been personally, I've been through this scenario many, many times, uh, being with uh, you know the band Thin Lizzy for so many years. I mean, it, it, to me, it seemed like, and it's the old joke, is you know there was a revolving uh, door on the right hand side of the stage constantly. I would look over and think, well, what's that guy's name? You know. So I'm I'm completely comfortable with all of that. I look at it as just kind of, you know, fresh blood, fresh energy, you know, coming into the band. So, uh, to the outgoing member, thank you very much uh, for what you've done. Uh, good luck. Uh, but, you know, something, the, the world keeps turning, you know, it, it keeps spinning. And if you, uh, you know, actually believe in what you're doing, the world will keep on spinning and you just keep going, you know. So uh, I loved, uh, you know, everybody that's, that's, uh, you know, been and is, and is in the band right now. But uh, when you truly believe in something, you just keep it going. Uh, you do. No, kind of no, no matter what, the train keeps rolling. Which, by the way, would be a great song to cover. But ultimately then, <laughs> right? It's a great song. <laughs> ultimately, sure. would is is the band Scott and Ricky? Like, if, if we don't have <gasps> Scott and Ricky, does it make a difference? I mean... Is is that sort of the core that has to be there? Are you the sort of the the Steven Tyler of, and Joe Perry of of Black Star Riders? You two? Uh, well, I, I I've never even thought about it in that, in, in those kind of terms, but I, I guess so. Ricky and I were we're such good friends. We uh, you know started this whole thing out together. Uh, I personally you know asked Ricky to uh, joint then Lizzie when I, when I fired uh, Lizzie back up again, cause I, I knew what he could do. Uh, uh, I, and I knew, uh, what he could do lyrically also, uh, he really did remind me of, uh, kind of a youthful Phil Linett with the, uh, just the way he, his thought, thoughtfulness on the, the lyrics, he actually tells a story. It's not, uh, you're not just getting rhyming a moon and June kind of lyrics. You know, this guy sits down and he really thinks about 
you know, what he's going to sing about. He's often said, you know, I, if I don't believe in, uh, uh, in what I'm singing, I, I just can't sing the song. I, I can't do it. I, I got to believe in it. And, uh, and I believe him when he, when he says that. So, you know, when you read Ricky's lyrics, you know, that he, uh, 100% believes in, uh, in everything that, that he's singing. So, yeah, you know, he, Ricky and I were great partners. We're great friends. Uh, I think that, uh, Maybe if either one of us wanted to, uh, you know, head off into the sunset, you know, it all might crumble or, or it might keep going ahead. It's uh, like I said, Mitch, I haven't even thought about, uh, you know, the band in those kind of terms, but uh, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll see in the, the future what happens right now. Everybody's really happy with, with what's going on and the new guys in the band and the energy and, you know, the new album. So, uh, yeah, what can well, I tell you on that one? Yeah, well, you know, another state of grace uh, is the new album, and it's out now. Sounds it, it. Listen, I'm a fan. I've got everything plus the B sides and the Japanese imports. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm a nut. But uh, you did mention Thin Lizzy. The band did, of course, play some shows in 2019. You brought back J- Damon Johnson uh, in his role of Thin Lizzy, not in Black Star. Mm-hmm. Is that something that we will see going forward where in 2020 you'll hit a couple of European festivals or maybe like it, does that band sort of still exist in perpetuity or at some point do you say, all right, 2020 is the farewell tour 2021 that, how do you sort of see that? Well, you know, I, I'm never going to say, uh, you know, this is totally the end of Thin Lizzy, uh, but I will say uh, uh, I'm not going to bring Thin Lizzy out. What, to, to fill up the bank account, for God's sakes, you know, I mean, if you think about it, this, like you mentioned in uh, this year, we, we only did four shows and that, and that was it. You know, I was determined that this was not going to be a bankrolling kind of situation. I was there. We put it together to uh, uh, the Black Rose album was 40 years old uh, this year. And uh, Phil has been gone for 30 years. So I wanted to, you know, pay homage to kind of, you know, both of those, both of those things, but not to do it in a really extended situation because my uh, uh, main thing right now really is uh, Black Star Writers. But, you know, uh, so that's what I mean. For me to bring out uh, Thin Lizzy again, it it will be for a special, it, it will be for a reason. Uh, it's not, you know, for financial purposes or anything like that, which I can imagine maybe other people do, but it's, I, I kind of refuse to do that with, uh, with Thin Lizzy. Well, Hey, you've got, uh, you've got Chinatown's 40th next year. So that sounds like a good reason to me. <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, uh, uh, I know there's probably a little bit of, uh, talk about it right now uh we'll see we'll see what happens you know i know that uh there were lizzie fans out there in other countries that were a little cheesed up that uh you know that we didn't bring it over to them uh you know so we might relent and uh you know go and visit uh, maybe a couple other countries uh with uh yeah like you say the the chinatown album because i i i personally really like that album i thought there was a, a lot of really great songs off of that one so but you know it's tough doing those kind of situations. It's like with the the Black Rose album. Uh, I can remember sitting in Paris in the studio with Phil, listening to a kind of a mini mix playback, 
and leaning over to him and saying, well, that one's never going to see the light of day on stage, right? And he would nod his head and agree, right? So there was about, I don't know, four or five songs that uh, never, ever saw the light of day. Uh, so now you're going out there and you're playing these songs for the very first time. Uh, you have no idea what uh, you know the audience reaction is going to be with these songs that have never been played. Uh, uh, so that is a little, you know, what's going to happen here. But I think what did happen for me is on a, a fair few of those songs that didn't get played, after we played them, I kept wondering, why did we never play these songs live? These are actually really cool songs to play live on stage, you know. So, you know, it's it, it, and it's probably going to be the same thing if we go out and do Chinatown. It's probably going to be the same thing there. You know, uh, uh, there will be several songs that we that uh, we never played live on stage. And I'm if we do it I, and we learn all this stuff, I will probably walk out and go, "Wow, man, why didn't we play that one or that one?" You know, so in in that respect, you know, doing these, you know, we're going to play the Black Rose album from start to finish. It's it's a daunting thing, but in the end of it, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing when when you when you get done with it, know that you've done it, and realize that uh, there actually really were some pretty cool things on each album. There there was, and that well, you know what? I was going to ask you about the name, but let me ask you about this. And since you mentioned uh, that you would sort of have these discussions where you'd go, okay, this song is album. You've played almost every song live at some point during the band's career do you approach an album now with everything has to be sort of stage ready or do you still have that sort of mentality of no that's going to be a good you know album cut and we'll, we'll how do you sort of approach the final product or the writing i guess is the ultimate question yeah yeah that's a really good question uh i don't think we've ever uh written anything or recorded anything uh saying to ourselves, well, ultimately, this is just going to be a deep cut. Uh, you always want to say to yourself at, at some point during that song, even, either the writing process or uh, the recording process, yes, we will be able to get up and perform that song. Uh, nothing's too impossible. We haven't uh, layered this song so, ridicu so ridiculously that, that we can't reproduce this on the stage, you know. We try to do that with uh, Lizzie a lot too, uh, you know, not not put in too many uh, things that you could could not reproduce uh, the next day on stage. So, uh, yeah, uh, and, and once again, I, I there's no real great massive discussions uh, on that part of it. I think that's just sort of a, a DNA thing that you everything that you write, you kind of visualize that being played on stage rather than just sitting in sitting in the uh you know the album jackets uh you know covered full of dust and and uh, will never get played so hopefully uh uh and you're right uh i think we have probably played at some point every black star writer song uh, on uh, uh at least the three previous albums uh on this one uh i know for a fact but there's only nine uh, tracks on this album, but we are doing. We're absolutely doing five of them uh, straight out of the straight out of the bag uh, on on this next uh, couple of tours. So, who knows? You know, maybe uh, the the other four will at some point at some point get dusted off, and we'll we'll try those too. 
Now, now mine has 11 because I bought the Japanese bonus uh, version because, you know, I invest. <laughs> I have it right in front. I, I, in fact, I like uh, you. I like you. <laughs> see, th- th- this, this sound is actually me uh, flipping around the CD here. The uh, bonus track here, uh, Candidate for the Heartbreak. Oh, Candidate for Heartbreak. That's what it right. says. Uh, good song. Um, all right, let me ask you this. Uh, I know that you've been asked in the past about why did you become Black Star Riders and not stay Thin Lizzy. We know. We, we know you have right. to change. Right. right. But it was a difficult path to do that because the the easy money is go with the brand. You know, go with the Coca-Cola, go with the Ab- Kiss. Go Absolutely. Um, is that now looking back something that you are still enthusiastic about or do you sometimes look at yourself and say – we could have just gone with the brand because there's pros and cons, right? Yeah. The shows there's more would be money coming. in it. There's more money in it. Well, yeah, that's yeah. The, the that's the pro, the money, the the merchandising, the everything. The cons are fans going, well, it's yeah. not Thin Lizzy because Phil. But ultimately, it's the music business, and it's right. about putting money in the bank. Sure. Um, so to talk to me about that decision, and in hindsight, is there like, no, we did the right thing, hundred percent, or? Fuck, yeah. I should have just taken the money. <laughs> well, I can tell you right now, I, I have never regretted uh, that decision. Uh, and that kind of the, one of the big reasons is that, you know, we uh, we, we wrote 17 songs uh, thinking maybe allegedly, I don't know what, that, you know, that, that we were going to do this under, uh, you know, the, the brand, uh, under Thin Lizzy, uh, until I just couldn't take it any longer. And I just had to tell everybody that that was not going to happen. Right. But, you know, uh, and you know, as soon as you make that decision, uh, you, whatever heights that you're at, you know, with the brand name, you're going to be dropping down a fair few notches. Uh, when, when you, uh, you know, start this new thing, everybody does, you know, you got to work your way back up. And we all knew that this was going to be, this was going to be hard work. You know, now we got to start from the bottom. Nobody knows these songs. Nobody's familiar with it. Uh, tighten your buckles, belt buckles, uh, because and get ready for the ride. Cause here we go. And that's pretty much the attitude that we had. You know, it, it wasn't, Oh my God, you know, we've, you know, we, we're not going to be making as much money. We won't be able to do this or that. I think it was more of the challenge of the whole thing. Uh, I, you know, I think we can do this. I, you know, let's get in there and, and do it. Cause I think we can do it. Not really realizing how, how much work there was involved. Right. But I, I, and I don't regret that side of it either. It's, uh, it, it's been a ride. It's been a, it's been a great ride and it, and we're still on it. We're still on the ride. So we're four albums. I mean, we didn't even think that we were going to get past album number one. You know, are we going to be able to record album number two? Uh, and now here we are. We're on our fourth album. Uh, I can see us doing probably a fifth uh, sometime in the next couple of years. So, no, I don't. Uh, I don't regret it. Uh, and I do get my, uh, you know, Lizzie chops up, you know, every every once in a couple of years. I'll, I can get out there and, you know, play the song. So it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, it is. And and. It's probably great not to go have fans go. Well, dancing with the wrong girl is a great, it's a great song, but it's just not a Thin Lizzy song. So, and right. it's like, yeah, all right, all right, all right, shut up, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, um, yeah, you know, at that point, you you were you were always going to be you know compared against history, right? And it's kind of tough to uh, 
uh, wrestle with history and uh, what's the point in that you know that it's already been done uh and i did it with my friend phil so let's let's take the let's take the the road left or right yeah. or whatever you want to or, or let's go down that path for a while and see where it takes us and you're doing great now uh, we're four albums in um when you do play when you open up for judas priest when you're on the road uh, on occasion, you'll throw in a Thin Lizzy song and so on and so forth. Do you see yourself as we need to have the next album be a studio album? Or at this point, do we start thinking, hey, you know what? A live album that sort of shows what we are, who this lineup is. Or... <clears throat> is that something that you've started considering at this point? You know something? We have not. But since you've mentioned it, <laughs> I think it's a good idea because uh it's kind of it's a it's a great thing we have going for us is uh, this is really a kick ass live band. There's no doubt about that. You know, everybody knows what they're doing. Uh, you know the songs are great. Uh, I I think we can come up with a with a great live album. Uh, so yeah, that that should definitely be on the cards. You know, at some point uh, uh, in the future. You know, maybe it'll be with uh, you know this lineup here. You know, with the uh, you know, Christian and Chad's, uh, Robbie, myself, uh, Ricky, uh, uh, I think it would be a good lineup, a good candidate for, uh, for a live album. So yeah, it's, that's great food for thought. So it we'll is. definitely be thinking about that. Well, I think it's a great way to, uh, to represent. And I think some of the, the fans that maybe weren't there at the beginning could say, Oh, Hey, I didn't know about this song. Okay. You know, uh, get into it. Um, just real quick, we we did mention Black Rose, uh, its 40th anniversary, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, 2019, so it was 1979. Talk to me a little bit about that album and the importance for the band and for you. And, you know, it's got Waiting for an Alibi, which is one of the all-time greats. Uh, how important or not important was it in the band's career? Was the success sort of already entrenched and you were moving forward? Or was this one where you had to say, all right, we don't get this right. Uh, sort of historically, what was the context for you? Well, historically, I, yeah, I do. I think it's it's a fairly important album for uh, for Thin Lizzy. There were a, you know a lot of great songs that that came off of that album. Uh, it was the only album that uh, Gary Moore was on. Uh, he couldn't see himself lasting the course for for any longer, right? So it was uh, it was nice to. Uh, to do one with Gary. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, Gary and Phil were great friends on and off. They had a real love hate relationship with each other for God's sakes for years. But, uh, historically, you know, it, it, that's kind of hard for me to talk about. I think that's more of a, a, a fan kind of thing. You know, they're going to either have to tell me or you what they historically think of, uh, you know, the status of, of any album. That, that we did. Uh, I, I find it hard to really kind of think in those terms of what other people are thinking, what are the you know best albums or best tracks or whatever. So uh, I, I, I don't really have a great answer for that one, you know, so uh, I don't know what to tell you on that, Mitch. You don't, you don't want to say, well, okay, let me help you. Uh, best song, Waiting for an Alibi, and uh, best guest performance, Huey Lewis. That's terrific. Huey, yeah, you know, he was a, a support act for us for a, a couple of tours. And uh, I remember going out into the auditorium and, and uh, you know, they were sound checking. And I guess the singer, their singer was late or something. So Huey walked up to the mic and he started singing. Now, we didn't even know that 
that Huey could sing because all he was doing was playing harmonica with uh, with uh, the I can't remember the band that he was in right now. Was it the news? No, yeah. wasn't Huey no, Lewis no, no, the news. it wasn't the news. It was? Uh, no. Oh God, now oh. I feel terrible. Right. Uh, anyway, no. well, I'm going to I, I went. I went back in our dressing room and I said to Phil, I said, "Have you ever seen that harmonica player Huey? Have you ever heard him sing?" And of course, he said no. And I said, "Come on out here and you know check this out." And, and Huey was out there still singing. And uh, it was kind of from that point on we kind of really hit Huey. Like, what are you doing playing harmonica, man? You should be out there singing, you know, or at least have your own band or whatever. And, and sure enough, uh, the next thing we heard about him it was Huey Lewis and the News. You know, so I think uh, I think Phil really got to to get get away from the uh, harmonica and, and get onto the microphone. So. Nice one, Phil. <laughs> nice, yeah. And and according to this, his band before was called Clover, and their That's albums it. were produced by, produced by Mutt Lang. Yep. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Hey, Huey, I'm sorry for, for forgetting the name. <laughs> Clo- Clover and Mutt Lang. Wow, there yeah, you go. What a uh, nice combo and, there, huh? Yep, and it says he was known as Bluesy Louie. Uh, Bluey, <laughs> no, what is it? What was his name? He said Bluesy, Bluesy Lewis was his name. There okay. you go. Uh, yeah, there because you go. of the blues harmonica, right? Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, just real quick here before we before we wrap up with uh, Black Star Riders and other State of Grace, talk to me a little bit about the songwriting process. Is it pretty much Ricky Warwick runs off and does all the lyrics, and then you come back to the band and you and Robbie and sort of figure, okay, what music goes here, or is it music first and yeah, or does everybody just bring in a song? And you, do, how do you sort of figure out what song goes where and who writes it and what credits? And yeah, that's another good question. But it, it's all of that jumbled mess together, right? But with this one, uh, we did it in a completely different way. Uh, this was written in a way that I didn't even think was possible or or should be possible. Uh, you know, Christian is one of those, uh, you know, pro tools guys, right? He's always got his pro tools with him on tour and in his uh, hotel room, where, wherever. Right. And he says, listen, I've got an idea here. You know, I did this on one other album and it came out great. Right. And the, the reason he was bringing this idea up is because we all live thousands of miles away from each other. Uh, and, uh, we really only had two weeks to rehearse and record uh, another state of grace, uh, which is always shocking. You know, I remember back in the day, you had three months to make a studio. Now it's down to two weeks. So Christian says, well, how about this? You know, you guys, you know, put all your ideas down, you know, you know, riffs, uh, chord progressions, um, you know, harmony, guitar, harmony thing, whatever you got, you know, record it on your iPhone, iPad, whatever and send it over to me and i'll start on my downtime i'll start trying to glue all of these uh different parts together and put them into song form and then i'll send them back to you guys and see what you think right and i immediately went oh, i don't know you know that's that's not i don't know you know i like to be in the room eyeball to eyeball with the with the guys in the band you know duking it out for the parts and and, he, you know, you say, well, it's actually really a, a time saver because once we get into rehearsal, that's time is going to be eaten up, and, you know, working on a range. Uh, I said, well, OK. All right. I, I get it. So uh, I send in, uh, I think I had 20 ideas that I sent over to him and Ricky had 25. And, and yes, Ricky does write all the lyrics, 
we that's that's his stomping ground and, and nobody uh nobody tries to step over that line it, it, that that's 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 his guy there so that's what we did and uh like i said i sent my 20 ricky sent his 20 you know I, everybody in the band had a few ideas he sent them in and true to his word christian sat there on the back lounge of the bus and started gluing all this stuff together and he would excuse me, uh, start sending ideas, song ideas to each and every one of us. And a lot of it, you're going, yeah, you know, that sounds great. You know, I get that. Or, eh, I don't know, maybe we could work on that. Maybe you just shifted that to the, you know, that kind of conversation. Right. But to the point where, uh, after a couple of months, uh, I think he had something like, uh, 15 or 16, songs of our ideas all glued together right and what it did it it did it saved so much time that you know when we finally all met up in los angeles we all kind of had a basic idea of where each song was going you know obviously there were there were going to be fixes here and a fix there or a fix over there or or whatever right but it, it just saved so much time that when we finally got in the studio to uh start recording this stuff, you know, everybody knew what they were doing. We knew, you know, what direction the song was going in and why and what the reasons were. And, uh, and that's why I think it, uh, you know, came out, uh, the way it did, because uh, now we could, we had could afford more time of working on uh, different sounds or, you know, have a background singer come in and work with her or a keyboard player and work with him, you know? So, uh, it was a different way of working, and I I really enjoyed it. You know, if, uh, fr- from from me thinking this is going to be a total disaster to me walking out of the studio going, "Wow, that was a great idea. <laughs> that was really cool." And that's how uh, we uh, you know put this last uh, uh, Black Star Writers Another State of Grace album together. Yeah, great album, which I have right in front of me. Right. I can hear it right there. Um, and I'll finish on this in terms of, is that sort of the biggest adjustment as a guy who's sort of a veteran of the scene? You've been playing since God, uh, what, 73, 74, at least professionally. Yep, yep. Is it the recording process that has been sort of the biggest change for you where you're not four on the floor with some guy going, all right, start it off. Let's get this song done. And you're now doing email, email recording or <laughs> what is sort of the biggest well, that, for... that is a culture shock. There was, there's no doubt about it. You know, uh, when you're, you know, have done something like 20 albums and you're used to, you know, spending a long period of time on, on each album to be told, well, you're, you've got 12 days, uh, knowing that, you know, once you start the track, you've got to finish it on that day because tomorrow we're on to the next one. And we're going to start that and we're going to finish that one, you know, so that's, that's a shock to the system. I will, you know, cop to that one. So, uh, well, I was going to say, does it remove the creativity? Cause there's got to be points in the seventies and eighties where you sat there and you go, "Mm, no, that's not the fill I'm hearing. No, that's not the solo. I mean, and and then it, and then you get, you know, you get waiting for an alibi and you go, ah, effing perfect. Has right. that well, been removed from the process? Uh, no, I, I get the question. I understand what you're what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes, yeah, you uh, because things are going at such a fast pace that uh, 
you get done with one thing and you listen to the next thing, you think, geez, if I would have had 10 more minutes on this or whatever, you know, but you know something, there's always going to be those excuses. Even if you had three months in the studio, you would come back to it next month and go, ah, you know, if I had another week on this thing, I'd probably <laughs> do it even better. So yeah. uh, it, it, well, there's, some, there's something to be said for, you know, on the spot, uh, red button on, you know, go man up, you know, let's see what you got, you know, so there's there's a there, there's a positive and a negative for you know right. b- both sides of the argument. Yeah, and I think some of the negative is sometimes you're sitting in the <clears> studio and you're getting a little bored, and then you have a, an extra drink or two, and then at some point you're like, "Oh, are we actually recording an album? I thought we were at a party." Sorry, you know, so well, it, it, it cuts both ways. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> nobody drinks here. Ah, uh, Scott, absolute pleasure. Always, always a pleasure. Black Star Riders, another state of grace, is out now, and of course, if you don't own. All Hell Breaks Loose, The Killer Instinct, and Heavy Fire. <sighs> you should. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. You should. Exactly. And get The Killer Instinct Deluxe Edition with the acoustic bonus disc or whatever, because that is fantastic. Uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Cheers, Scott. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mitch. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. 